Luke chapter number 19, and we'll talk about the triumphal entry a little bit here as Christ is entering into Jerusalem there before uh, his betrayal and the crucifixion, the resurrection. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse number 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, where, uh, whereon ye never, yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. We'll speak this morning one of the most intriguing events, I think, in the life of Christ. My mind goes back, and some of this is based on a sermon I heard years ago up at Bowie Trade Days. I, I bought a, uh, sometimes you just find things in weird places, and it was at Bowie Trade Days, I found a tape set of B.R. Lakin. I don't think y'all remember B.R. Lakin. Uh, he's been gone for quite some time now, but uh, a tape set of some of his sermons. And uh, I, I got that when I was in Bible college. I, I'd listen to that in the car. And he had a sermon called The Laughing Crowd and the Weeping Jesus that was on there. And it's, uh, uh, it's always stuck with me, and that's partly the inspiration for this. The thinking about this scene, and it's, by the way, it's covered in all four Gospels. You can see the description of this in all four of them. But there's a very drastic contrast that takes place here. On one hand, there's a crowd. They're celebrating. They're rejoicing. On the other, we have Christ who weeps amidst the celebration around him. Now, let's go back and talk about what's going on here. There's a swift current of events that will end with the crucifixion, with the resurrection. All this is no surprise to God, by the way. All eternity hinges on these events. All this is no surprise to Christ. He has warned his disciples at least seven times. I think there's seven times he tells them, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. He's very clear about what's going to happen. This is not a shock to, any, to, to, to Christ, to God, 
This is all part of God's plan. Still, his friends, his enemies, they're all going to be caught off guard in what is to come. In John chapter 12, verse number 1, it says he arrives at Bethany at his friend's house, Mary and Martha Lazarus. He, he arrives there six days before the coming Passover. And uh, Passover, and, and to understand what's going on with the sacrifice of Christ, you need to understand the Passover. It's such a beautiful, vivid, powerful picture of what Christ is going to do. Passover is the 15th day of the month Nisan on the Jewish calendar. That makes this six days before the, the ninth day when he arrives at Bethany. Mary, when he's there, anoints his feet. It's a wonderful act of worship, of devotion. The next day, the tenth of Nisan, Christ travels about a mile and a half. If you go straight over the, uh, the Mount of Olives there, about a mile and a half to Jerusalem. And there's a significance to this day. The tenth day of Nisan. If you go back to Exodus 12 and the very first Passover that's in Egypt, God had some very specific commands for the people. Uh, verse 2 says, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speaking all, uh, unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the house will be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next uh, unto him take uh, to his house, take it in according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall uh, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Here it is, the tenth day. There around the temple, there in Jerusalem, the people getting ready to celebrate are getting their little lambs. And they, they're separated. They're, they're, by the, why they did that? You know, they did that to make sure that they're clean, make sure they're without blemish, to make sure nothing happens to them. They're taken in. Uh, and cared for specially, separately from the rest of the flock. Here it is on the tenth day that here comes Christ entering Jerusalem, singled out as the spotless Lamb of God. That's the significance of what is happening here. He is being heralded, chosen by the people as the promised Messiah. They just did not understand what that meant. Christ sends two of the disciples to fetch a small donkey. That's a clear statement, by the way. He's telling the people who he is in this. The prophet Zechariah wrote over 500 years before this day. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. It's a clear. The Jews knew when they saw him on that, they knew what it said. There's the king. There's the Messiah. The disciples find the animal just as Christ said. The owner objects. Hey, what would you think if somebody comes and took your animal? You know, somebody gets in your car and tries to steal it. Uh, what are you doing? Well, the Lord, the Master, the Messiah has needs of it. And I'm going to tell you, I think that guy knew. 
I think he went running back to the city and said, guys, you're not going to believe what's about to happen. You guys better get ready. Jesus is coming and he's got a donkey. You guys know what this means. I, I think he goes running back and starts telling people. I was not saying that scripture. Maybe that I'm embellishing things, but I think it happened. By the way, the culture of that day, there's additional significance. He's not riding a horse. A horse was meant for warfare. A donkey was a symbol of peace. He's coming now in peace. Not coming as a conqueror. He's coming as a lamb. But friends, one day he will come back as a lion. One day he will. He's going to come back on a horse. Oh, look, Revelation 19. That day is coming. The heavens will open. There will be a white horse. He that sat on him is called faithful and true. And eyes of flame of fire, his head with many crowns, a name written no man knew but he himself, clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, white and clean, out of his mouth goeth a sharp, to, uh, sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That day is coming, but it wasn't that day. He wasn't coming as a conqueror yet. But on this day, here he comes riding from the east, there over the Mount of Olives towards the Temple Mount. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you've got the Temple Mount, the Mount of Olives. I mean, he's coming west to east. Or east to west, sorry, east to west there. I do it backwards from your perspective. Okay? <laughs> He's coming over there. And, uh, and, and there's, I mean, that's where the temple is. There's just a valley there. It, it, there. He's not going through the city. He's going up to the temple mount. The disciples, the crowd, are jubilant. Three things mark their excitement. They carpet the path with their coats. They don't strip down their clothes. They take off their jackets, their coats. They put it down on the ground to carpet the path to smooth it. Second, they wave uh, fronds, these are from date palms. They pull them down. They're waving them in the air. And, and those things rattle. They make a little bit of noise. It's a symbol of, uh, of thanksgiving, a symbol of victory that they're doing. They're excited. And the next thing they do is they shout. And there's a lot of people there, and I think these shouts, and there's a whole lot of things going on. All four Gospels recorded a little bit differently. Matthew says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark says, Hosanna. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke says, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John says, Hosea, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. I said, Hosanna, that's a cry in Hebrew. Save now, save us, save us. They say, Son of David, the King of Israel, that, that Christ is the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. They say, coming in the name of the Lord, that's a recognition that He has come. God's hand is upon Him. Fulfillment, promise. Glory in the highest, the highest praises. They're not just a little excited. They are wound up. Here, they are giving Him all the praise and glory and honor. They talk about the kingdom. And that's where you begin to notice. They're expecting that the Messiah would fulfill the promises and the prophecy. That Israel would be ruled by the great King again. 
that they would be the biggest, strongest nation. They'd be free from the rule of Rome. And this is where we begin to see there's a disconnect between Christ and the crowd. What did the crowd want? They wanted a king. They want, they want to be free from Rome. They wanted to be the top dog. What was being offered by Christ? The sacrifice for their sins. Christ knew their hearts. He knew that He had come as the suffering Savior of Isaiah 53. He knew He had not come yet as the conquering Messiah of Isaiah 11. Not yet, anyway. He knew that the same people, by the way, who were crying Hosanna at that time would just a few days later be crying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! He knew the same people that welcomed Him right then as a king would just in a short while be given a choice. Would you rather have Christ or would you rather have Barabbas? And those people that just proclaimed Him to be Messiah would say, well, we'd rather have Barabbas. Yeah, let's have Barabbas. He nears the towering walls of the city of Jerusalem. There atop Mount Moriah, the vast temple complex that Herod the Great had remodeled and one of the grandest buildings of the ancient world. He put he rebuilt it to be on par with the greatest buildings in that in the, in the world at the time. The shouts of joy and praise still surround him, but he begins to weep. Not over the walls and stone and structures. And they're not worried about the rock and stuff. All that can be rebuilt. But the inhabitants of the city, the Jewish nation, that would reject him. He knew that because of their rejection, what lay ahead, that city, that temple they were so proud of, in 40 years' time, a Roman general named Titus, who had become emperor, is going to be there. He's going to surround it, and they're going to lay it waste. There's no stone left on top of another. They're going to destroy the city. The temple's going to be disassembled. They're going to take it down to the, to the foundations. Just level the city. That would come in just four decades. The joyful crowds around him had no idea of what was to come. Can you see it in your mind? The laughing crowd, the weeping Jesus, shouts of joy against the pouring of tears. How could this happen? I have four quick thoughts. First, the crowd shouted ignorantly while the Savior wept knowingly. Christ had tried to tell them. We could go through and we could show you the numerous times he tried to tell them what was going to happen. And when he did, Peter took him aside. Don't, don't, don't say that. That's not going to happen. He tried to tell them. The prophets tried to tell them. Their customs, the sacrifices, all of that pointed to that the Messiah would come, the perfect Lamb of God, to be the sacrifice for their sins. But they would rather believe what they wanted to. They'd rather hold on to their own ideas. I ask, is that not still true today with mankind? Not careful with us also. Many would rather have their good time than to know the truth. We say sometimes, well, they, at least they're happy. Well, you know, my favorite is, well, he died. He's doing what he was. He died doing what he loved. And was not any less dead. We have to understand God, God knows. God knows. 
Sometimes in our ignorance, we, we're, we're wrong. We need to go to Him for the truth. Go to Him for the truth. Second, the crowd shouted selfishly while the Savior wept selflessly. They wanted freedom from Rome. I, I'm convinced that's what they, that is what they wanted. You go read all these accounts. You read everything. They wanted a king. They were tired of Rome. They wanted to be the top dog in the world. They wanted to be the new world power. By the way, what is that? That's pride. That's selfishness. They wanted it all for themselves. What a contrast to what Christ had come to do. He had come to perform the greatest act of love ever seen. He would lay down His life, not just for a friend, but for the entire world. Not just for those that would love Him, but yes, even for those who would hate Him. Even the ones that beat Him, that mocked Him. All these, He died for them also. He bore the weight of the sins of all mankind of all time upon His wounded shoulders. He felt the judgment of God in our place. The crowd was selfish. The Savior was selfless. Is that not still true today? People shout the name of Christ for what it will get them. They shout it, and well, if it'll get me in, if it'll get me in the crowd, if it'll get me some business, if it'll get me some prestige, if it'll get me some votes, I'll shout the name of Christ. But they never take up the cross and follow Him. Serving Christ is not about us. It's all about Him. Third, the people shouted for the moment while Christ wept for the future. The crowd expected to see something happen. We all like a show. And that's what they had come for. They thought, hey, this is a momentous occasion. This is history in the making. Christ to come, not just to... But, but, but when Christ came, He didn't just come to solve the problems of that day. Oh, it would have been great if they could have been reestablished and been a world power. That would have been wonderful. But it wasn't just their little problems of that time. He is much bigger picture. He was trying to take care of the biggest problem in eternity, and that is sin. He had come to solve their eternal problems. He came to save them from their sins, not their place in the world. Again, is this not still true today with man? The cry of today is, now, now, now! So many never think that the good times will ever end. So many today, they never think the hard times are going to come their way. They're going to need a friend in Christ. So many never think of what will happen when their life is over. And they will need a Savior in Christ. All they focus on the here, the now. How much can I get? How many toys can I have? How successful, how famous can I be? But Christ said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Have an eternal perspective. And fourth, the people shouted thinking salvation had come to them while Christ wept because they would not come to Him. So it's a, it's a kind of a fine distinction here, but the people were excited that Christ had come to them. But what was Christ preaching? Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest into your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, Christ, yes, Christ is God. He came down to us. I understand that. But these people are sitting back expecting Christ to do it. And Christ is saying, no, you've got to do something yourself too. Christ put it this way, Matthew 23. He's, he's weeping over Jerusalem again there in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. You wouldn't. I would have welcomed you back. I would have brought you in and taken care of you and comforted and cared for you. But you wouldn't come to me. You would not come to me. Again, is this not still true today? People want a Savior to come down to them. That's kind of the whole evil philosophy. I'm not a ranting, sorry. I'm not a big fan of the He Gets Us campaign and stuff. I think it really lowers the dignity of Christ in this. It's not that He gets us. He does, and He understands it, but it's not about us. We need to get Him. That's what you really, really need to do. People want a Savior to come down to their level. But we don't want to have to go to His. Understand what I'm saying? We want a Savior that's like us, but we don't want to be like Him. People don't want to repent from their sins. They want to hold on to those. I want the best of both worlds. I, I want to have my sin, and I want to have Christ too. It doesn't work that way. No man can serve two masters. Wrap this up. Musicians, you can go ahead and come on up here. Just a few quick statements. As a Christian, we should strive to be Christ-like. What He loves, we should love. What He hates, we should hate. What He does, we should do. We should emulate Him. Therefore, if I'm living my life and I look over and, and, and I see Christ, I see that perfect example, that perfect pattern that I'm supposed to be living my life towards, that He is molding me into. And I look over and say, you know what? I don't have the same reaction. I'm laughing. I'm cheering. I'm celebrating. He's weeping. There's something wrong. I have to realize there's something wrong. What's the right reaction? It's His. It's His. Kind of like when you uh, something happens and you everybody married will understand. You look at your spouse to see how you're supposed to react before you do. You want to make sure you do, you do something right. Well, sometimes before we act, before we say something, maybe we ought to look over at Christ and go, "Is that what I'm supposed to do? Is that okay?" Saw this a lot of grief. Second, there's today too great emphasis on celebration in many churches. I'll just be honest. Uh, Celebration, joy, all this stuff is great in its place. There needs to be that, but I don't see the weeping. And our Savior was a man well acquainted with grief. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He weeps here. He was a man of great love and concern. The psalmist said, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Where are the tears today? Where's the grief? 
over our sins, over the burdens, over looking out at a lost and dying world. Where is the weeping? Our Savior was moved to tears several occasions. Should not we be also? And last, as we're talking about this moment, here is Christ. He is presenting Himself to the nation of Israel. Here He is, the spotless Lamb of God, their Messiah. Would they accept Him? Would they not? They said, well, yeah, I'll accept Him, but on my terms. I want Him to be the Savior. I want Him to be. That's not how it works. He doesn't get to be what we He is what we need. And at that time, what did they need? What does, what does the world need more than having a great king on the throne? It needs our sins taken care of. The greatest need of this world was taken care of that, those days, that coming week. Christ would be betrayed. He'd be tried, found innocent. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. An innocent man to go through the agonies of the crucifixion. Why? Because anything he didn't know but to bear our sins. He was buried. He was dead. He didn't faint. He was dead. Three days later, he rose again. Proof of God's satisfaction. Proof that death, hell had been conquered. Proof that we could have life and victory evermore. Friends, we don't need a Jesus to come save America. We need Jesus to save ourselves. We don't need a Jesus to save our schools. We need Jesus to save ourselves. Make sure we're looking for the right Jesus. Make sure you have that Jesus. That's why He came. So that we could have eternal life. That we could be united with the Father. That's why He came. Don't fall in the trap that they did. You better know Him. You better know Him before it's too late. You better know Him. That's the most important thing in this world is knowing Him, knowing your sins are forgiven. You'll stand. We'll have a, a time of invitation here. What number there, Owen? 109. 109 in the Heavenly Highways. We'd like to sing along with the invitation hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, a di different type of sermon than uh, I normally would preach, but how vivid this scene plays out in my mind. It, it breaks my heart to see my Savior in tears. It breaks my heart to see even those close to Him. They, they don't seem to understand what's going on. Lord, that we would have that consciousness to know You. Lord, to, 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 to be like You enough that in that time we would be weeping beside You. To understand that. To feel that. Lord, let us not be swept up with the crowd. Let us not get caught up in the, getting off in the wrong thing through ignorance, through selfishness. But let us draw ever closer to You. Lord, let us be like You in Your actions, in Your emotions, in Your love. Lord, and if there is someone here watching online, watches this sometime in the future online, I, I don't know however it may get out. Lord, if they don't know you as Savior, that they get that settled. That's why you came. That's why you came for us. Get that settled today.
before it's too late. Lord, press this simple message in our mind. Let us be like our Savior. Speak to us, I pray, in this, in this invitation time in the Holy Name. Amen.